John chapter 17, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh and to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they would truly know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you give me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you give them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you give to me. They have received them, and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Isn't that beautiful? What a universe is in those five words. I am praying for them, brother and sister, that includes you. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. And I've not lost one of them except for the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Time's a funny thing, is it not? How do you measure time? Do you measure it by the clock? Do you measure it by events? How do you measure time? This marks a year today since I did my last service at Coastline Community Church. And it doesn't feel like a year in some ways. It seems longer, and in other ways, it seems shorter. But as I was thinking over this past year, I had me reflecting. Have you ever done that sort of reflected and got wistful about things? I, I miss haggis. <laughs> haggis is lovely. You think about things, and one of the things I thought about was living through 2014 in Scotland. Many of you might know the date, but you'll certainly know what it was. 2014 was the year that the Scottish government put to the people of Scotland, should Scotland be an independent country. And it was quite a year trying to hold a church together with diverse viewpoints, trying to stop people dressing like William Wallace on one side and people dressing like Margaret Thatcher on the other. And it was quite a time. It was, it was really... It was exciting. You didn't know what the next day was going to bring. And then the 18th of September was the day of the vote when Scotland decided to stay. But around that time, the then Prime Minister and our current Foreign Secretary got himself into a wee bit of bother because he did the one thing that you're not supposed to do in British politics. You can do many things in British politics, but the one thing you're not supposed to do is reveal what Her Majesty the Queen thinks. And our prime, the Prime Minister of those days, David Cameron, made the mistake of saying to a fellow EU, EU leader that when he called the Queen to say about the result that she purred down the phone like a kitten. I would have loved to have been in the phone call afterwards when he had to apologise to her. But that's the rule of politics. The Prime Minister does not reveal what the Sovereign thinks, and the Sovereign has never revealed what they think. The Queen, we will never know what she thought of politics. And that seems to be a thing, is that the higher up you go, the further up the trail you go, things become secure. They become issues of national security. We can't talk about them. 
Our conversations are closed off behind private doors. And the higher up the authority structure you go, the more these conversations become hushed and quiet. Contrast this to John 17 today. We get to stand in a moment of great sovereignty for the universe, because this is the King of Kings talking to the Lord of Lords. But actually, we also get to witness something more than just a, a powerful moment. We get to witness a tender moment. Believers in this room, who is the one person you can talk to and pour your heart out to? The Lord. Amen. As the psalmists say, read the psalms, they say they pour everything out to him. And what you pray to the Lord is some of the most private and intimate things I imagine in your life, is it not? So this morning when we come to John 17, this amazing part of scripture, it's the capstone, it's the pinnacle of all that's happened before. We get to stand beside Jesus. We get to stand beside the creator of the universe, praying to his Father in heaven. We get to hear the words that he has prayed. This is an immense privilege we get to listen to this morning. And one of the amazing things we'll see about this chapter after we look at the first opening remarks is Jesus reminds us of his mission is we get to hear who he prays for. We get to hear who he prays for. And guess who he prays for? Us. His disciples. His followers. So friend, this morning, let's just pause everything. And if you're sitting here thinking you're overlooked, you're forgotten about, somebody forgot to mention you, there is one who is in heaven who never forgets you. You could be in the furthest parts of the universe. As David said, I could flee to the furthest corners of the world. He is there and he is praying for you. You could be sitting in what you feel is the darkest chamber away from any living soul. He is there and he is praying for you. The hymn perhaps captures it best. My name is written on his heart. So if you're sitting here this morning despairing, if you're sitting here this morning thinking God has forgotten about you, friend, he can no more forget about Jesus because Jesus links these prayers and links you to him and links you to the Father. He has not forgotten you and never will. If you're in Christ, he is praying for you right now, this second, which is amazing. I'll come, let me just finish. He is praying for us right now, this second. So let's look at this prayer together as we come to it, verses one to five. Firstly, how does Jesus pray? He spoke the words to the disciples. We've been over the past couple of weeks looking at the Last Supper and how Jesus described his ministry. It started in John 13 where he washed the disciples' feet. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, who is like Jesus? There is nobody like him. He washes the disciples' feet in an act of great humility. He has taught them about how they should love one another as he has loved them. He was betrayed by Judas. And as Judas walks out, Jesus looks after him in sorrow. He taught them about the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit would come and be a helper to comfort them, to sustain them, to be even greater than what Jesus could be to them. Last week, we looked with Barnabas at how his sorrow, even though we sorrow in this world, it will be turned to joy because our God is a joy-producing God. And how, lastly there, verse 33 in John 16, he said these things that you may have peace, that wholeness, that shalom, that peace that surpasses understanding. In the world, we will have tribulation, but take heart. He has overcome the world. All those themes, all those things that Jesus said, all those uh, different teachings now come together in this prayer. 
So Jesus lifts his eyes up to heaven. That's the standard form of Jewish prayer. You read it in Psalm 123, verse 1. It's an easy one to remember, that, isn't it? 123, verse 1. You read about it in that psalm as the psalmist lifts his eyes up. He doesn't lift his eyes in Psalm 121 to the hills, but to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 123, I lift my eyes to heaven and pray to you. Jesus lifts his eyes up to heaven and prays to the Father. Now let's just pause there. Jesus needs to pray. The one person in the entire universe who didn't really need to pray, who had communion with the Father in the Trinity, through the Holy Spirit, constantly, unceasingly, and unendingly, he stops to pray. How many times throughout the ministry of Jesus do we see this? When Jesus was going to call the 12 apostles, he spent a whole night up the mountain in prayer. All throughout, even when Judas betrayed him, we see it in Hebrews, he was known by his loud cries, the author says of Jesus, his loud cries and supplications to heaven, and for these he was heard. Prayer isn't a ritual. It isn't something we have to do. How many of you woke up this morning and took a breath of air? Please say yes, or we've got some serious. <laughs> we all breathe in and out, do we not? Well, I hope so, anyway. <laughs> Prayer is more like that. As we breathe in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we breathe in heaven, as we take Jesus' promises in our heart, and then we pour out all the hurt, all the heartache, all the things we are struggling with into his presence, we cast our burdens in him because he cares for us. Prayer is essential. Do not lose the blessing off it, brother and sister. Do not make it become a tick box exercise which you feel guilty about because you haven't assigned certain times. The best thing you can do is pray. And those prayers don't have to be elaborate. They don't have to be long. Sometimes like Nehemiah, they're just an arrow you shot to heaven saying, Lord, help me. But prayer is children talking to their heavenly Father. Nothing more and nothing less, but something very beautifully and profound. So Jesus prays. The first part of the prayer, verses 1 to 5, he prays and gives thanks for his mission. He gives thanks to the Father for sending him and gives requests to the Father. In these five verses, we get something of an image of what we should continue on as a church. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. To glorify God is to show his worth, to magnify his name, to present him to the world, and how Jesus did that in a most beautiful way, did he not? The Father was glorified when Jesus pulled Simon Peter out of the water when he was drowning. The Father was glorified when Jesus fed out of his sheer compassion 5,000 men plus women and children. The Father was glorified when Lazarus, who was bound by the chains of death for four days, rose from the grave at Jesus' bare word. Lazarus, come forth. Jesus spent his whole life bringing glory to the Father, showing the truth about his name, contradicting the false doctrine, contradicting the false truths that the Pharisees were putting around that do, 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 God is only pleased with you, fulfill a list. No, I desire mercy instead of sacrifice. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Those who are sick need a doctor. His whole life glorified the Father. And he was given authority over all flesh. I mean, I do read the news sometimes in despair, do you not? Thank God that our authority in this world doesn't rest with the politicians. And I don't set to criticize them. They have a difficult task. Our authority doesn't rest with the bankers. It doesn't rest with the United Nations. The authority and supreme authority in the world rests with Jesus Christ. 
And he has been given authority over all flesh. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, all authority and power has been given to me under heaven and earth. Go therefore and baptize. Make disciples in my name. And what does he use this authority for? How does he exercise his authority? How does he build his kingdom? How does he establish his empire? He comes to do it this way, verse 3. And this is the key point of this passage. John's gospel is written to us, uh, chapter 20, verse 30 tells us, written so that we would believe in him. This book that you have before you in your hands this morning is a living and active word that comes and challenges you and wrestles with you until you come to know Jesus. Jesus reminds us again in verse 3, this is eternal life. Have you ever been to dinner parties or conversations where somebody drops a clangor in the room and the whole room goes silent? Plates drop and there's polite gasps. There's very few things that do that in our society. I know I was told one thing when I came to England, never, ever, ever ask somebody the price of their house. That's one clangor. Don't talk about politics, especially with your accent, Daniel. That's another clangor. But the third one, which will stop a conversation is death. We don't talk about death. We try and hide it behind flowers and funeral homes and cosmetic services. But the reality in the world is that there is in this world pain and heartache that is ultimately symbolized, ultimately shown in death. Death was not God's original plan. It was not part of the creation, but it came because we cut ourselves off from the source of life, from the source of healing, from everything. It's like a flower taking a pair of scissors to itself and cutting itself off from the roots and saying, I live. But we cannot live without God. We cannot survive without Jesus. And as this life goes on and on and we try and go further and further from him, the hardness, the heartache, the pain, the suffering increases and intensifies. And like the prodigal son, we find ourselves going further and further down a slope that we did not want to go down but cannot stop. What will arrest this death? What will deal with it and what will give us life? Because in us, we yearn for life. We learn for life in its fullness. You read any philosophy, they're yearning to find joy and hope and happiness in life. Even the Stoics wanted to find that. Even they're very Stoic about it. Jesus is the one. The only one, as we heard in John 14, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. And he has come to give us eternal life. Life in all its fullness, as we read about in John 10. He is the good shepherd who comes to give us abundant life. And what does that life look like? Well, we even the past couple of chapters, it's a life that's marked by joy. Marked by joy. Not like the Cheshire cat that I talked about a few weeks ago that's always grinning. No, not in a knee and superficiality, but a joy that fills the heart, a joy that is birthed in peace. Peace between God and us, peace at the heart of the universe. A love. How many of us yearn and long to really, truly be loved without conditions, without qualifications, without reservations? God is the one who does that supremely seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. This eternal life that he comes to bring is an amazing thing. 
And that is what he has come to do. He didn't leave us in death. He didn't leave us in condemnation. He didn't leave us in damnation, but he came and he wrestles with us this morning and say, come, no eternal life and the one true God. There is only one true God and the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ, the one who reveals him whom you have sent. Friend, do you know that eternal life this morning? If it's your possession, if you've trusted in Christ, this is yours. And you may feel the struggles and the sorrow and the heaviness of the world. I get that. I understand that. Paul understood. That's why he talked about being crushed and pushed down. And yet, and yet within us, there's this living force that cannot be conquered because Christ has you. And he who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion. Believer, take heart. I love that when Jesus says it. I always hear him say it with a Northern Irish accent. If you go to Northern Ireland, I probably shouldn't confess this because this is me letting you into a wee secret now. If I've forgotten your name, you will probably hear me say love. If you're a man, you'll hear me say son or, or boss. So I do apologize. But one of the things we do in Northern Ireland is we talk to each other, we say son. And I just love it when Jesus, Jesus said a few, a few weeks back ago when he's in John's Gospel, he says to the young man who's lying crippled, who's lying broken, he says son. There's an affection in that, isn't there? Son, take heart. Friend, are you going through difficult days today? Take heart. Jesus still lives. If you've got challenges ahead of you, you've maybe got a mission week or you've got a trip to plan, take heart. He's the one who works and through you to will and do his good pleasure. If you're here this morning and think, Daniel, I would love to know this God, but surely he is not interested in me. Read that passage again. He has come to make himself known to you. John chapter 7, or verse, uh, chapter 7, whosoever comes to me, Six, sorry, John chapter 6. Whosoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. How broad is that no wise? It's not like the Scots when they say you're no wise, that's a different thing. I will in no ways cast out. Come to him this morning. He has come to make himself known and to save and redeem you. I glorified you on earth first for having accomplished the work that you give me to do. That is true. He had done all the work. He had done all the Father had commanded him. He had shown God. He had preached the truth. And the last bit of his work was about to be accomplished. People say that Jesus was forced to go to the cross. That Jesus going to the cross was an accident of Roman authority and misuse. No, Jesus went to the cross because it was God's plan to save the world. And he went bravely. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you before the world existed. So Jesus has shown his mission to give and make known eternal life in his name, that the true God and the Jesus who has been sent by him, he has glorified him and done all that he had commanded him to do, and now he's going back home to his father. Isn't that beautiful? There's a very tender moment here, isn't it, between the father and the son that we're privileged to see? How many of you think of God as cold and distant? What's that song? You always get a song from me. I'm not going to sing it. What's the Abba song? The gods as cold as ice throw their dice. The winner takes it all. If you are looking at me as if Daniel, what are you talking about? Go on to YouTube and you know that's gods as cold as ice. That's really not the case here, is it? Look at the tender love. Father, I'm coming home to you. Give me glory in your presence that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus reminds us here in verses 1 to 5 that he is the one sent by God to save and redeem. He has come and he is the only one who can give us the answers to the question of life and eternal life and it is ours if we believe in him. 
And now he's going back to the Father. And as he goes back to the Father, I mean, how many of you, when you're going on holiday, how many of you, anyone going on holiday soon or been on holiday? Sometimes it's better not to go on holidays. By the time you pack your bags and fight with Ryanair and go through the airport and land there, then fight with hotel and eat funny food and then come back home, you're like, what did I do that for? It's not just me. I should maybe go to better places. No. <laughs> when you're packing and when you're about to head out on a journey, your thoughts aren't really about others, are they? You're trying to remember if you've packed the swimming trunks, if the sun's creamed there, if the kids are looked after, if you've got the tickets downloaded. When you're packing, you're focused on going away, aren't you? You can say yes, it's okay. It's not. <laughs> Jesus is excited to go home to his father to go back into the presence. And it actually reminds us of what Jesus did for us when he left heaven and came down and made himself a servant. It's amazing. But Jesus' thought here as he is leaving is not about himself. It's like the Apostle Paul when Paul says in Philippians, I'm torn between two things, to go and be with Christ, which is far greater, but to stay here, which is for your benefit. It's not an amazing thing, actually. That Paul would say, actually, Lord, I'm not ready to come yet. Let me stay because I love this church that's driving me do Lala. Because that's what you do. And Jesus here in this supreme moment where he sees coming back to the Father, even though he's to go through the cross for the joy that was set before him, he still has his mind on the disciples. He still has his mind on the disciples. Verse 6 to 12. Let's look at this. This is how Jesus prays for us. Unfortunately, this message is going to be incomplete this week because we'll look at the second half next week. But let's just look at some of the things that Jesus prays for us. Remind ourselves of these truths and then see what he has us do about them. Verses 6 and following. I have shown your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were and you give them to me. John 10 tells us that we're not only in Jesus' hands, but we're in the Father's hands. We're doubly secure when we're in Christ. They have kept your word, verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Being a believer shows us that we know that Jesus is indeed sent from God. And everything that Jesus did comes from the heart of the Godhead. As Barnabas reminded us last week, we are loved both by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not as if Jesus has to kind of placate God and say, God, actually, you know, give them a second chance. No, the Father loves you. No greater proof of God's love exists than this than he sent his only son to die on the cross for us. And the son didn't come as if his feet were being dragged. The son came because he loves you. And the two of them out of their love send forth the Holy Spirit and he comes and he doesn't sort of go, oh, well, I've got the hard end of the stick. He comes in love too and bursts love in us. Love has been trivialized in some ways in our world. It has been sentimentalized too. But I do hope uh, you've all got your sniffing dollar Valentine's Day card this week. Did you? Anyone can see me after the service and I'll sort it out for you. <laughs> but love has been sentimentalized and trivialized in some way. But true love, real love, is affectionate, yes, but it's sacrificial. And it seeks the good of the other, despite what may be rendered to it. The true definition of love. The love from the triune God is poured out into us and manifested amongst us. Everything that Jesus had been given by the Father, he now gives to us. 
For I have given them the words that you give me, words of salvation and healing. Yes, words of judgment too, but judge so that we would be repenting and come back to him. Judgment, truth, salvation, holiness. These have all been given to us. The rich teachings of God contained in his word. Jesus, give them to us. They have received them and come to know in truth that I came for you and that they have believed that you sent me. Why do we preach every week? Why do, why do we do this thing? It's to bring forth the word of God again and again to remind you of what God has given Jesus. Jesus has given us and now we hold out to you and to the world. That's why we labor. That's why we translate the scriptures. That's why we go to the ends of the earth to bring this good news, the knowledge of God, so that one day Habakkuk's vision will be fulfilled where the whole earth is filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Are we there yet? No. And that's why we keep going. Jesus prays with us in those endeavors. And you, friend, this week, as you go into the workplace and somebody asks you, where were you on Sunday? You say, well, I was at church. What will you hold forth to them in the word of life? Somebody asks you this week, well, why, why are you Christians always so joyous and happy? Hopefully they ask you that. <laughs> you can give reason for the hope that is within you. If you've got a situation between brothers and sisters that there, there's difficulties and disagreements and you know you're called to love one another, but it's hard. Jesus is praying for you in that too. He has given us these things. And he expects us to take them, receive them within. Remember a few, we're going to have communion later on where we say, you know, take and feed in the body of Christ, receive him in your heart with faith and thanksgiving. Good old Thomas Cromery got that 100% right. The real way to believe and trust in Jesus isn't just with your head, but to receive him internally and wholly like you would eat a bit of bread. And when you receive him, you receive his word and his word shapes you and goes out in the spirit. Brothers and sisters, are we glorifying the Lord? Are we showing forth the words and the teaching that he has set down for us? Are we living like him in his strength to show forth his name to the world? Are we glorifying our Father in heaven? It's a challenge, is it not? It's a struggle to do this, is it not? So verse 9, again. Isn't Jesus great? I mean, he is the teacher par excellence, isn't he? He gives us a challenge he sees us or sets the goal and then we're like, oh Lord, I'm going to struggle. And then he turns around and says, but I'm praying for you. It's not amazing. I'm amazed by it. I'm praying for you, verse 8. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. What a beautiful truth. All mine are yours and all yours are mine and I am glorified in them. That's the reason why we exist here on earth. To show folk the love, the beauty, and the glory of our Lord. And that, my friends, is worked out not in isolation, but together as a church family. And as he works through us, as the word shapes and guides us as we go out and show our light out there, that is how God does it. God is glorified in us when we live and delight and follow like Jesus. And we need his help to do that, which is why he prays for us. But as he prays for us, and as he seeks over us, we are comforted in the knowledge that the foundation of all we do is this, that we are his and he is ours. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. 
and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. I'll pick this up again next week because this is a powerful thought to unpack. Keep them in your name. How do we stay? How do we do this? How do we love the Lord? Well, it goes again back to John 15. Abide in me. How many of you like people who name drop? We're kind of jealous of them, but aren't we? Because they drop a name and it seems to open doors for them. So even though we don't like it, we're kind of jealous of folk who can sort of name drop, aren't we? Oh, well, I know so-and-so. Oh, fair enough. Jesus here, in a profound and respectful sense, does the greatest name drop in history. And he drops his name in us. If we abide in him and he in us, the vine, the branches... The Father and Jesus have come to make their home in us through the Holy Spirit. The name which we live under, the name which we operate under, the name which covers us is God himself. Because in the scripture, there's a very powerful link between the name of Yahweh, which is why the Jews will never say it because it seems so holy. They say Hashem, the power. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, when that name is invoked, it doesn't just invoke like magic, but it brings the power of God because God's name is so identified with him. His glory he will not give to another. And so when his name is placed upon us, like a check that is signed, heaven, Jesus, and all his rich blessings are open to us on his account. Oh, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Oh, that we'd know the power that it has worked within us to bring glory to his name through the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Jesus reminded the start of this of his prayer, of his mission to come and bring glory to the Father's name. That is our continuing mission. And he prays for us this morning. He prays for us that we would know the words and live them out, not just honor him with our lips while our hearts are far from him, but truly live as he called us to live and not in our own strength, but in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit as we come together as one body. Notice he prays for us to be one. That's a real challenging prayer, isn't it? That they would be one, even as we are one. Church unity is important. Church unity is precious. And church unity is grounded not on people who agree with each other, not grounded even on similar confessions of faith or structures of church. It is grounded on the unity of the Godhead. That we would be one even as they are one. And that is the beauty of the church. When a church comes together under Christ, and Christ is the source of our unity, and we come with our different temperaments, our different backgrounds, our different tempers, and we come together as one, and his glory shines through us. There's a beauty in that that the world cannot comprehend until it comes to know him. Do you want to know how the prayer ends? Please come back next week. Let's pray together. My Lord, forgive me if anything I said that was not helpful. We are aware that we are standing on very precious ground as we see you pray to the Father. And we thank you that you have recorded this in your word for us to see and know. We thank you that you have come to us that the last great enemy, the last great fear, death itself, has been beaten by you. And we need not fear it. That you have come to give us eternal life through your cross.
as you dealt with the penalty of sin and separation from God, as you took my place, our places, and redeemed us. We thank you that you rose from the grave, love's redeeming work done, fought the fight, the battle won, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. And we thank you as you leave us with this mission that you have not left us resourceless or hopeless, but you right now are praying for us in heaven and you're praying strength for us. We thank you for our church family here at LBC. We pray that as you have left us your word and your name and your Holy Spirit that we would indeed show this love. As we come around the table now to remember communion, Lord, help us to remember your love, but also the love we're to have for one another. May you take that precious, precious command and strengthen it and deepen it in our midst. As we love one another, we thank you and we pray that you would help us to, as your redeeming love does, overflow and spill out to the people around us. We pray for the different things that we as a church are doing and we thank you, Lord, that you've given us this. We pray for CAP, the course that starts soon, that you would bless and use that. We pray again for the CU and their mission week this week. We pray for our international mission. We pray... Press with and also, Lord, this morning we'll remind you to pray for Shepherd Food Ministries as they had that damage done over the weekend, Lord. Through that hard circumstance, may you bring about good to glorify your name. Bless them as they seek to serve you. And we do this, Lord, because we want your name to be known. As the old hymn says, Jesus shall reign over all the earth. Where the sun doth set, Jesus shall reign. So help us, Lord, to do this. And I pray for my brothers and sisters as we approach the table now, that if we are lacking in peace, that you would give them peace as the world cannot give. If they're lacking in joy, Lord, may your joy be their strength. If they're feeling unloved and forgotten, Holy Spirit, come and root and ground them in the love of Christ Jesus, their Lord. And lastly, if any do not know you this morning, Lord, you are the one true God, who has sent Jesus to make yourself known. Help them to meet with him and believe in him this morning, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask if somebody from the welcome team could please bring the junior churches back in, and the worship team is going to come forward now and lead us in our song as we come to the table.